During our Bible study last week, one of our friends shared that recently when in New York City, a panhandler had become threatening, following him and his friend, yelling at them, creating a scene, concerned that it could become worse, maybe even dangerous. They sped up their walk and they moved away, leaving the person to his rant well behind them. As we sat in Bible study, considered the texts and the stories of welcoming the stranger and caring for those among us who have less, the question arose, yes, I get all of that, but what am I supposed to do when someone is aggressive, unstable, frightening? It's a loaded question especially if we believe this quote, that the purpose of unity of Christians with one another is for furthering the reconciliation of the whole world, all of humanity, all creation to God. Randy Jones says this in her book, Evolution, UCC Style. So what do we do when we fear or when imminent danger is face to face with us, when fear and danger and our compassion for those who are less, have less, what do we do when our paths cross and the desire for reconciliation comes to a rough edge? So let's see this morning if we can unpack some of that. Let's see if we can go through the readings, starting with Genesis and come up with some direction, if not answers. So in Genesis, we start off this morning in the reading. It says, Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oak grove of Mamre, while Abraham sat at the entrance to his tent in the heat of day. Looking up, Abraham saw three travelers standing by. Here the text seems to be telling us that Yahweh, God, appeared to Abraham in the approach of the travelers or the strangers. Didn't say God and travelers, God or travelers. It said Yahweh appeared to Abraham and then the next thing, three strangers come into his presence. There was something about them that made it clear to Abraham they were of God. Did he see God in all strangers? Did he see God even in those who he might have feared or even fought? Did he treat situations of danger the same as the one described here? Come, I will feed you. Probably not. So first, there was an assessment of some kind on Abraham's part when he saw those strangers approaching. But on Jesus' part, Jesus was forever encountering and seeing God in those shunned by others and society, even when there was danger. It drove the disciples crazy. Jesus, what are you doing? What are you sitting at that well for? Jesus, you can't feed them. We've got to get away. It drove them nuts. And perhaps that is what makes the last words of this morning's reading so haunting 
as we try to live into the teachings of Jesus and the practice of hospitality and the welcoming of the stranger. The last words of this morning's reading of the gospel. The truth is, every time you did this for the least of my sisters or brothers, you did it for me. And as rational thinkers, the counter-argument adds the second punch to the gut. The truth is, every time you don't do this for the least of my sisters and brothers, you are denying me. At least that's what we think, perhaps. As our friend said later, recalling the earlier portion of the story, he said, you know, it's easier to put a few bucks into a panhandler's basket or cup that is smiling, carrying a sign, asking for help, or otherwise unthreatening. It's easy to welcome strangers that are clearly so special that we're suddenly filled with Oh my God, that's God and God's grace coming to us. It is not, however, so easy to see God's grace in everyone. Even when we pray our hardest or try our hardest, we rely on God in some way to pick up the slack because we can't do it all. Jesus acknowledged this partnership in these words in Matthew chapter 26, 11, when he said, the poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. It seems that Jesus was adapting a phrase that the disciples and those who knew the Torah would have heard before from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother and your sister, to your needy and the poor in your land. Your needy and your poor. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. What are we supposed to do? And the second question too often is, or the statement really, it feels as though we're failing. Just look around us. Before we go any further, let me say this. When we find ourselves sensing that we are uncomfortable and in overt or perceived danger, when it seems evident that we are facing others who have lost the capacity for rational interaction, Unless it is your job to be there and you are trained to deal with it, move away quickly. If need be, calling for help. There will be a time later to consider the action and to consider the event. That's important. So let's try something to see. There's something will help us work through this. First, I would like everyone to take just 30 seconds or so, and to think of an act of kindness or care or generosity or compassion or giving or love that you practice, have done, will do on a daily basis 
outside of anything that we might do here together. Just take a second and think about that. Something you do. Got it? Okay. So now multiply those thoughts, those actions, some acts of hospitality and care that you take. Multiply those thoughts by the number of people here and others like us around the world. And we begin to get a sense of the immense amount of kindness that we share in with our sisters and brothers, the smallest of seeds, multiplied over and over every day, moving closer together in the fabric for peace and compassion that changes the world. As important as the impact of these acts of kindness for one another and planet have been to all engaged, they are important especially for the giver, for the one who gives. And it is good to reflect upon these things on a regular basis so that we don't forget how reconciliation, kindness, compassion, hospitality, love, caring, small acts of support and help are part of our everyday life, even if there are huge areas that need enormous amount of attention. So in answering the question, what am I supposed to do? Step one, I think, is consider and remember all we do in our lives now. Step two, same thing. Think of something really important in the world that you would like to change, something that if you had the power to change tomorrow, one thing, what would it be? 10 seconds, because I think you know this already. You can't, sorry, you can't, individual, you can't change it. It's not like that. Remembering that we are contributors to the solution, participants in the solution, a solution that we may never see, add your contribution to the solution whatever it may be, and not be overwhelmed by the enormity of what needs to be done. So if you feel compelled or moved by the experience with the person on the street suffering from mental or emotional illness, say a prayer for that person first, and then send a check to those who help. Clean out your closet and donate clothing. Plan a day to serve a meal here or elsewhere. Will you or I solve the problem of people living in conditions of homelessness? No. Should we be incapacitated because of that? No. The poor will always be with us. 
See, each thing we do is an act of hospitality and reconciliation. See it multiplied over and over and all the things, the good things people do that they don't come up to you and say, do you know what I did? We know that's true because we see God in the other and God is there to help. Is that so different from Abraham and Sarah? Is that not the same story? The stories are about what they did, what Jesus taught, and now about us and what we do. We cannot let the enormity of the challenge discourage us from sharing what we have to share as a prayer in our time, from our resources, out of our kindness, in all the ways we know. And we can't let the sadness over conditions bat away the embrace of the abundant grace, the abundanza of God that is in our lives and in the place in which we live. We are not alone, not just to not be afraid, but not alone in trying to do these things that need to be done to help to change this world, to bring that message of reconciliation and love to all that need to hear it. Being here and now in this congregation, hearing these words, examining your heart, praying for others, worshiping God and considering how you can help others, that's a do. It's an action. You are part, to the degree that you say so, you are part of the life and expression of this congregation that has agreed, or at least has agreed not to disagree, in lifting up a prophetic voice to help others, to bring hope to others, to bring the good news even when, especially when, that stranger may not be so welcome to those around us. Even when, especially when, our acts of love make others a bit uncomfortable, you know. Just as those disciples were uncomfortable with Jesus from time to time. truth is, I think that when others confront us for the things we do, it is not because deep in their hearts they don't want to see the same things done. It's because it scares the heck out of them to think that maybe they have to do something themselves and they don't know how. Like the students who avoid the class they wish not to take, we become the curriculum for others they sometimes wish not to embrace. So we teach and we lead anyway, and we continue to get better at both. We welcome the stranger and we practice exuberant hospitality, even when it might make us a little bit edgy. We get criticized for Black Lives Matters posters, even when to do so is misrepresented as somehow being against those who professionally put their lives on the line each day for all they are called to serve. How can you say that about us if you don't know who we are? Because there's a sign hanging outside. We welcome refugees and stand with immigrants concerning others that we are messing up with their beloved neighborhoods, undermining the law and America as a whole. We support dinner programs for people who are on the edge 
And we're accused of bringing undesirables into the neighborhood. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Tax collectors, women, centurions. Jesus, what are you doing with those people? Jesus, Nelson, Mahatma, Abraham, Martin, John, us. We vocally and demonstratively call for an end to gun violence, and they tell us that we're against the Second Amendment. We are open and affirming and welcoming for our LGBT community, members of this community, in this church, in this community, and beyond. And we incur the wrath and the sneers of some whose fear labels love for all as somehow gone awry, throwing gay church, gay church, gay church in our face. As if they didn't know or love somebody who was LGBT. As if they knew who we were based on their fears. But boy, those voices, they can be loud. They exert powerful forces upon our desire to reconcile, and we default to being nice, oh, because we are welcoming. We, we stumble into apologies. We're so sorry you're uncomfortable. We defend ourselves because we confuse sometimes hospitality with being held hostage to others and their perceptions. We're not here to be nice. We are. But that's not the purpose, I think. And we are not here to apologize for our collective covenantal agreement that calls us into the fray, not away from it. Come on. Who wouldn't want a congregation like this to be their home. Who wouldn't want a church like this if they have any openness of heart and love for the stranger and the oppressed? Who wouldn't want to be part of a church that stretches itself, sticks its neck out because there are others who have been silenced and need help? Who wouldn't want their kids to be brought up in a place that prepares them for a better world, not a more comfortable few? And whether providing dinner for folks living in homeless conditions or accompanying someone facing deportation to court, teaching young people in our building next door, creating prayer shawls, prayer shawls for those to remember our touch and prayers when we are not physically together, when collecting clothing or food for others, when we work to figure out a way to address suicide, Opioid addiction, substance abuse, kids and adults living with exceptionalities and special needs. It's not about nice, it's about love. We are always nice, but are we strong enough to love when others think we are not nice? Are we loving enough to care when we experience the epithets and the snide remarks of others attempting to shut us down like they oppress and shut down others with those same words? We are real and nice, prophetic and nice, and determined and nice to make a difference and be nice when you disagree, but don't ever expect us to apologize for who we are. We welcome the stranger when we care for the least of us 
we welcome the stranger. Maybe not in a moment of danger, but we don't forget the danger others are in either and the needs they have, and we figure out a way. That's why we come together, because we can't do it alone. We can't make a rainbow with one crayon. Even when we get some heat, We're not here to be quiet and innocuously irrelevant. And when the heat comes, we never apologize for God in our lives or for what we are called to do, even when we don't all agree. Because we know something's going on. We know it's our job to teach and to lead. Because we have decided to do that. That, my friends, is abundanza. It is exuberance and hospitality and justice and love for all rolled up into one, and there ain't a darn thing about that to do anything except lift up for all to hear. Amen.